The following sermon was preached on May 9, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled A Care for the Widows on 1 Timothy 5, 3-16. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, many of you have heard Zach and me talk about trends that are taking place with respect to a whole new agenda, an agenda of social justice. It's not just in the PCA, it's in many other evangelical denominations as well. Where suddenly the, the message of the church is not the cross of Christ and the good news of the gospel, but a message declaring uh, justice and uh, reparations and uh, condemning all forms of uh, of uh, uh, injustice. We said that's wrong. In fact, at, at the meeting this week, we heard a report that many people are calling in saying they're no longer hearing the gospel in their congregations. It is wrong. But when we say it's wrong, then what do you do with something like Micah 6, where God, the prophet says what God desires is justice and uh, to walk in faithfulness and humbly before God. What is the role of biblical justice in the life of the congregation? Well, the answer to that is, is the gospel as it comes to us and changes us, as we are redeemed and, and reshaped as image bearers of God, we then begin to act toward our neighbor and to those around us according to the word of God, according to the commandments of God. We then, as redeemed men and women, begin to uh, exercise biblical justice in our particular relationships. And that is part of God's plan because the gospel is a great leaven. And as the gospel comes in first into a family and we see a marriage put back together and children beginning to relate properly to their parents and into the neighborhood, into the workplace. This has always been the system of the gospel. I had a friend when I ministered in Texas who was Mexican pastor down on the border on the Rio Grande, and he, he told us one time, he said, when the gospel first came uh, to them, it was the very poor that were being saved. But the next generation, he said, were the hardworking manual laborers, and that third generation became the pastors and the doctors, the teachers and the lawyers, as well as the hardworking manual laborers. That's what the gospel does, and that's how change comes about. Now, a good example of this is our text of this afternoon, where Paul speaks to us directly about the church's responsibility to the widow, but by extension to any of the destitute that we would find within our midst. In chapter 4, the apostle has dealt principally with the responsibilities of the pastor. In chapter 5, he begins to deal with relationships in the church, speaking through Timothy, though, as the evangelist that is there. And so we saw two weeks ago the responsibility of a Christian admonition and how it's to be done uh, in, um, uh, in, in humility and with an evangelical tone and, and in purity. Now we come to this very lengthy section of the church's responsibility to uh, the widow. So what I have here in your bulletin is the proposition is that God provides for widows, and I would add to that the indigent or the destitute through the church and family, or through the Christian community and family. God provides 
for the widow and the destitute through the Christian community and the family. So I want to break this text out, the first half, three through eight, the Christian responsibility to care for widows and others, and then nine uh, through 16, the church's role in caring for widows and others. So first, the Christian's responsibility. As I said, in verse 3, there's a commandment, honor widows who are widows indeed. And this is a commandment that is given in the singular. So the commandment's been given to Timothy. But it's given to Timothy for the sake of the church. As we unpack this, you will see that. Timothy is to be teaching the church then to honor uh, the widows. Now, I believe that Paul has deliberately chosen this word honor to take us back to the fifth commandment where children are told to honor their fathers and their mothers. And one of the responsibilities of that our Savior Himself spells out in Matthew chapter 15 as He deals with the unbiblical traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. He uses this commandment. Matthew 15, uh, verse 3, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? For God has said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would, that would help you has been given to God. He's not, he's not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So there the Savior uh, clearly relates the responsibility of honor to this matter of material care and support for one's parents. And that's why the word honor is used here. So it's to honor not just with respect, not with the lips. No, it is to honor in terms of doing whatever is within one's power and ability, as we'll see more in just a moment, uh, in caring for um, the widow. Now this has always been an issue in the church at the very kind of structural beginning of the Old Covenant Church in Exodus chapter uh, 22, uh, knowing this is going to be a need, immediately uh, it is addressed in verses 22 and 23. Uh, if you, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict them at all, if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. Same thing we read and sang in, in Psalm 146. Or think about the origin of the New Covenant Church in Acts chapter 6. Uh, Verse 1, at this time while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows had been overlooked. There was already food distribution taking place. That's what you need to see in the first place. Widows from the synagogues were being taken care of, as had been the custom in the synagogues. But apparently, because of, of organizational problems, the Hellenistic Jews, those who were there from the empire, who either stayed after Pentecost or had moved there, uh, there would be neglected in the daily serving of food. Notice the daily serving of food. The widows are being cared for. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. For we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. 
And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Look at verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I think that's important. You see, the, the Levites were responsible for the distribution to the poor. And now that the Jews see, yes, the church is carrying on this very important covenantal ministry, and they see there's a class of men been pointed to that, that became uh, an attraction of the gospel to, uh, to pious uh, Levites and, and priests. So at Mount Sinai, care for the widows. At Jerusalem, as the early church is being organized, there's actually now a system put in place to care for the widows that, if it were not the appointment of the deacons, became then the foundation of the work of deacons in the life of the church. So it's, <clears throat> it's an important ministry. It is a divine commandment. And it church now is to take care of the widows who are true widows, or widows indeed. We'll come back to what that means. But notice now, he delves more deeply. He narrows now the responsibility. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For it is acceptable, this is acceptable in the sight of God. Paul now, again thinking in terms of the fifth commandment, addresses families particularly the first two generations of, of children and grandchildren, but we could take it more broadly as well as other relatives who were in the immediate uh, vicinity. And Paul says now that the first line of help here is not the church, not the Christian community, but it must be the family, the widow who has around her children and grandchildren. Reminding us here of the importance of the family in caring for uh, the elderly. And Paul gives two reasons. Uh, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. It's interesting that uh, this sacrificial care, this honoring of one's parents or grandparents helps one develop godliness. If you haven't had time yet to read what Zach put on the back of the bulletin, I encourage you to do so, because James tells us that the, this care of the orphanage is an essential pillar of Christian piety. In uh, chapter 1 of James, verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless, pure, and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. Now, how would you define pure religion? to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You see, immediately at the heart of the gospel is this matter of care for the poor, for the dependent, for the widow, and for uh, the orphan. And so, it, in fact, when we exercise this responsibility, we then are going to learn piety. It entails self-denial. Most of us are not going to have uh, uh, you know, the freedom to do that with uh, no penalty to ourselves. We might, some might be that wealthy, but it's going to mean self-denial. It's going to mean doing without things, and then we learn to deny ourselves. And we do it for God's sake. And, 
and, uh, and the glory of Christ in the kingdom, and we grow in piety. We grow in the practice of piety. You see that? And then the second motivation is very logical. And to make some return, again, keep your Bibles here, keep them open, some return to their parents. You think what your parents have done for you, the expenditure, the time, the blood, the sweat, the tears. And what Paul is saying here is only but just in the sight of God that when parents now are in the need of the blood, sweat, and tears, of the support, it's only a comparable return for young adults to give back to their parents that which they have given uh, to them. And notice how he seals it in the way he's done before. This is acceptable in the sight of God. It's one of Paul's catchphrases. You remember he uses it back in chapter 2 um, when he calls the church to seek God in prayer and to do so for the lost. He says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So here again now, if he gives this uh, commandment to, to the family to care within its own uh, boundaries, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Now, before we go on to uh, describe the widow indeed, I want to just uh, remind you that uh, we're talking now in the first place about long-term support. We're not talking about the uh, immediate temporary support that the church is obligated to do as well. Uh, and this is part of our ministry, the doctrinal support of the church. There, there can be a widow who temporarily needs help and in transition there'll be others who are temporarily out of work or who have problems because of sickness or whatever. And the church has this responsibility to any within her fellowship uh, to care for them in that transition. And we'll find others coming to us. Having Antioch in our name, I guarantee you we're going to get a lot of phone calls to come up right on the top of the list. People start doing searches for churches in the area. Um, but particularly here, Paul is reminding us of the importance of long-term care in the life of the congregation. Widows, yes, but by inference, others. Now, of course, widows are, are probably the most delicate people in culture. Throughout ancient civilization, widows are so often cast off. Even now, I have friends in Africa who tell me, you know, that uh, a woman is a widow. She's a nothing in society. And she, they have no safety net like us because paganism doesn't produce safety nets and, and love and honor and care. And so a widow is very vulnerable. And that's why Paul chooses her and orphans here in this particular situation. But we'll face many other similarities. People, because of persecution, have lost everything. Perhaps God would bring them into our community and there'll be some period of time that we would be responsible to help them as uh, refugees. Others will lose work because of the Sabbath. Others will have terrible illness and perhaps be permanently disabled. Uh, we can imagine many different things that will put the church providentially in a place to care for the destitute. And we are the first safety net at that point after the family. But we also, when we say that, we recognize that we have only so many resources. And that's part of the beauty of being Presbyterians, you see. Because we are a connection of churches, and we have deacons that work together. And Calvary Presbytery has got organized diaconal ministry. Back when, uh, some of you know about Jeff Wint, one of the associates at Second Pres, and he had the stroke. And 
the churches and the presbytery have contributed to the man's welfare. And that is very much a part of being Presbyterian. But also something that's taken place in the history of the church is Christians, not the church, but Christians have formed societies to create orphan, orphanages and, and homes for the elderly. It's not the church's role, but it's the Christian's role. And they come together in the same way they might start a school and they start a society for orphans or society, um, a home for um, the elderly. Different types of societies to, to minister in, in that way. But what I want you to see is that this is an essential part of the gospel. An essential part of God's will for his church. Well, who is a widow indeed? And it translates, as simply means she really is a widow. Well, how do you really a widow? You're either a widow, you're not half a widow, are you? You can't be half pregnant, you're either pregnant or not pregnant. You can't be half a widow, you're either a widow or not a widow. So what does Paul mean by really a widow? Well, he explains that to us in verse 5. He repeats that phrase. She who is, now she who is a widow indeed. So who is the true widow? Who is this one that's going to deserve more permanent type help in the life of the body of Christ? Well, first she has been left alone. So she doesn't have the safety net, you see. That's what that language means. There are not children or grandchildren around. There's not a close family structure uh, that can care uh, for her. But in that time, she has fixed her hope on God. She's cried out to Him. She rests in Him. And she does not doubt that He is able to care for her. And notice then she continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Now, it's not that she's only doing that, but it's similar to Anna, of whom we read in, in Luke chapter 2, uh, when the Savior is presented at the temple, and uh, there's this very godly widow has remained now in the temple, and her ministry is a ministry of prayer and supplication. And so these widows indeed will be pious women who recognize that they maybe don't have a lot of energy or strength, but they can seek God on behalf of the church and, and one another in the body of Christ. And so she's alone. Her hope is steadily set on the triune God, and she continues in a ministry of prayer, supplication, entreaties, night and day. But so that we really understand the widow indeed, we now get a contrast, the negative. She who gives herself, verse 6, look at verse 6, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. So here is what I call the Mary widow. Suddenly, her husband's died, her children are grown up, and she's got all this time on her hands and all this energy. What does she devote herself to? Is she placing her hope in God? Is she committed to prayer and supplication? No, she is pursuing sensual, uh, sinful pursuits, even as she's part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. She professes him, but by her actions, she denies him. You see, she's a spiritual zombie, dead, even while she lives. I would warn each one of you here today, this is a very uh, easy thing for a professing Christian to, to fall into. Doesn't Paul warn us about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3? I think it's verse 6. 
have a form of religion but have denied the power thereof. That's what Paul means here to say, dead, even though she lives, she is alive spiritually. You, Paul, I mean, physically, you are alive physically as you sit here this afternoon. But are you really alive spiritually? How can I know? What is your lifestyle? What are your interests? What are your passions? What are your desires? Is above all else your desire to glorify God and to serve Him and to live according to His holy word and to walk by His commandments and to seek Him in prayer and supplication? Or are your primary desires yourself, the flesh, the world, your entertainment, your business, or whatever it is? You don't have to be a merry widow to be a walking dead. You can simply be a formless or form-powerless Christian. I would encourage each one of you to examine himself, herself, this afternoon, and be sure that you're resting in Christ alone for your salvation. And this is how you can tell. Are you like the merry widow, pursuing wanton pleasures? Are you like the godly widow, who places her hope on God and lives and walks accordingly? Well, in verse 7 and 8, Paul summarizes here what he is dealing with in this first heading. Again, this phrase he uses, prescribe these things as well, verse 7, so that they may be above reproach. Now, we looked at back in chapter 4. Paul gives this not as the introduction of a new section, but as a summary to enforce the seriousness of what he's just said. So when he talks about the habits of the godly minister, the godly man, he then says in verse 11 of chapter 4, prescribe and teach these things. In chapter 6, after dealing with the relationship of slaves and masters, he then uses this again, teach and preach these principles. And so Paul is summing up now this Christian responsibility to the poor, to the destitute, to the widow in particular, but others, as well as the family responsibility. And he tells the pastor, prescribe these things, command them. Instruct the congregation in them that they may be above reproach. Remember I showed you verse 7 in Acts chapter 6. What happened when the church began to exercise a careful ministry to the poor? Many were added to the church. You see, they're watching us. And particularly today in this, this fragmented society, we make certain professions, uh, and they're looking to see are they genuine. And as the Savior says, it's, it's by... It's by our love that they'll know He's of God. It's by our love that they'll know who we are. And that sacrificial love that is involved in this care for others around us shouts out to those around us that we are different. We're not looking at our uh, retirement to spend on ourselves, but we're looking at what we have. Yes, we can do what we have, and that's great. And as I've said before, God's not a socialist, and we each have our own conscience before Him. But are we taking, will we take care of, when, that, when that's our calling as a congregation, will we take care of, as we can, that we might live above reproach? That's the same word he uses of elders in, in 1 Timothy 3. Not sinless, but in a consistent way that trumpets the beauty, the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then part of his summary now, and now he and Paul often does this. He deals with a particular issue, and then he broadens the principle a bit more. So now he says in verse 8, look at verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own. Now, 
He's already said that they may be above reproach in verse 7. So now he has generalized. It's not just the widow. It's not just her family. It's everybody that's involved in this, this ministry, in, the, in this relationship in the church that we all together. But now he says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and suddenly now he's speaking to the man in the household. And especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul now goes to a very important principle just in terms of family life and care and ordering. For he's not just talking now about uh, uh, the man of the household being sure that his mother or his wife's mother or grandmother are cared for. Note, does he care for his own? His own household. See, that is the second word that is used here. And it sets before us a very important principle. The Bible never condones a house dad, okay? It's foreign to Scripture. Who, on whom does Paul call here to provide for his own and for his own house? He calls for the man who is the God-appointed head of the household. Oh, it could be that the man is ill or paralyzed or, or chronically ill or terminally ill or whatever, but the pattern of Scripture is that the man is responsible to care for his family. We see this, for example, in Psalm 128, a great psalm about God's covenant blessings. <clears throat> and he said, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways, when you, and now this is to the man, you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. For thus shall the man... Be blessed who fears the Lord. That simply enforces what I'm saying here is that as men, we have a calling from God to provide for our families and to be head of the household. And when, unless we're providentially hindered in that, that is where that responsibility lies. Now that includes men, and I would speak to you young men, that includes having uh, life insurance having those built-in safety nets that are a very important part of caring for one's wife and family. Now, it might be that uh, a young man starting out can't really afford that, but in some way sacrifice, do something to begin to build that, for that's part of your responsibility. To be sure that if God in His providence took you, that there would be a provision for your family. It wouldn't all simply suddenly be falling on the church because we've just established the principle. The first line, the safety net, is the family. And in that family, it is the godly man who is responsible to provide for his family. And so Paul establishes this first principle, the Christian's responsibility to care for widows and other indigents. Well, now in verses 9 through 16, he comes back now and deals more carefully and directly with the church's role in all of this. It's all vague in the sense, verse 3, honor widows, or widows indeed. But now, in verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old. Well, what is this list? How is a widow going to be enrolled? And for what is she being enrolled? It's a very important part of this next paragraph. Well, there are those that suggest the list was that the widows who were on 
uh, care of the church were enlisted as diaconal helpers. It was a sub-office in the church, and their responsibility then would be to assist the deacons uh, in uh, their ministry. There's two problems uh, uh, with that, three problems, excuse me, with that. The first is there's no record of such an office anywhere else in the New or the Old Testament. Second, you think of the culture, particularly where Paul is writing, um, and medical care and stuff in those days, a woman over 60 is not going to have that kind of energy to devote herself to an, an office of uh, caring for others in the congregation. She's devoted herself to prayer, he says, and uh, she might be quite feeble. Now, if she's able, of course, if she's uh, being cared for by the church, she's got strength, then she's going to want to help the deacons. That would just be the godly pattern of her life but it's not an office. Third, if that is the office, then what about all the younger widows who uh, are remarrying? Uh, are they not responsible also to help and serve? Or other men in the church who could help serve as uh, associates, helpers to the deacons? No, the list is simply the enrollment of those who are on the church's welfare system. The women who have had their names enrolled and shall receive their daily or weekly allowance from the church. That's what the list means. Now, beyond that list, Paul gives a number of qualifications. And ladies, none of you are widows, but even young ladies, what we have here is, is the ideal of a godly woman. Now, of course, uh, she can't be less than 60. That's not the ideal of the godly woman, but that set, sets the, the floor. Uh, nobody that is going to be um, younger than that, as we'll see, can be on the list. But no, notice that she must have been chaste. She's the wife of one man. Now, Paul's not talking here about polyandry. It was not being practiced anywhere in those days. He's saying the same thing that he says to the elders in chapter 3, that she is to be a chaste person, a chaste woman. Of course, not unbiblically divorced and remarried, but also a faithful woman of one man. A pure and faithful, a chaste wife is the first qualifications of, for this lady. And then she is to have a reputation for good works. This word good here means uh, honorable and, and works that are a blessing to the church, that she is known to be one who labors on behalf of others. And then if she's brought up children, whether they were her own or whether she helped others, she was involved in the life of the church in the rearing of covenant children. If she's shown hospitality to strangers, hospitality was even more essential in those days of a more radical kind as people would pass through or ministers would come to town. It was just a woman who's ready to open up her home uh, and to care for others in the church in that way. If she's washed the saints' feet, the sacrificial service, the, the menial labors on behalf of the church, as Christ gave us the example in John chapter 13, not a sacrament, but a willingness to serve regardless of how dirty the task was. And there's nothing I can think of that would be more dirty than washing the feet of the saints. But it was quite necessary. They walked about in their sandals in this dusty society. They come to the house that was the proper means of ministering uh, to them. If she assisted those in distress, she now is in distress, but 
Has she had a lifestyle helping others in their affliction, aiding them in their distress? And then kind of a summary. And if she's devoted herself to every good work. Now here, it's a different word from good than what we have up in verse 10. It is a word that means beautiful and, and comprehensive. So it's a summary of all female piety that she's devoted herself to these things. Now, you see here, if these are the qualifications for a godly woman who would deserve being on the church's uh, uh, welfare list, then surely these are things that women would want to be. These are things that even now you young girls should strive for and fathers should seek to rear their girls to have these kind of values um, in their lives, to be committed to have a reputation for good work, to be an Dorcas who then would assist others around her who were in need, who would serve others regardless, have that servant mentality to be given to hospitality. But negatively, younger widows should not be on the list. Under 60. And Paul is very adamant about this. He says, refuse to put younger widows on the list. Verse 11. Now why? They could be destitute as well. Well, in the first place, there was a solution. And he says he wants uh, uh, younger widows to, uh, we'll get to that, but to get married. But right now, it's a negative, a negative factor. He said, if they're on the list, verse 11, when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. Wow, this one's a mouthful. As I best understand this, what he's saying is, is that and the widow who's over 60 is a particular class woman. She's tired. She has no desire for marriage. Uh, she's content with what God has given her in her life and her children uh, and whatever. And she's happy now to spend her last days uh, trusting God through the church. A younger woman is going to have sensual desires. Um, and if she's put on the list uh, saying that, yes, I'm willing now to uh, remain chaste, uh, I have no desire to get married, I have this gift now of celibacy. And she's on the list, uh, and doesn't make you feel good that she's still young, under 60, but uh, she has no, no, no commitment to this single life because um, she's going to have sensual desires. Now, part of that is explained in the first paragraph where he talks about giving herself to wanton pleasure, the desires of the flesh, to pursuing satisfaction of the flesh in disregard of Christ. And it's an important thing to think about. If you pursue the flesh as a professing Christian, you are disregarding Christ. You're saying Christ is of nothing, that Christ is worth nothing to me. That's what you're doing. If you're pursuing a life of sin, of selfish pleasure, whatever those sensual desires might be, you're doing them in disregard of Christ. They want to get married. Now, Paul's not against that. In fact, he'll go on to say they should get married. But now they've got idle time. See, I think idleness is the key to understanding not just the second part of this, but this as well. They've got a lot of time on their hands. They're thinking about getting married, and they're pursuing it all the wrong way. They're throwing themselves at men. 
they are perhaps living unchaste lives because they want to be married. They want to satisfy uh, those desires that should be satisfied in marriage. And they incur condemnation. They come under God's wrath and condemnation. Why? Because they set aside their previous pledge, the end of verse 12. Now, some take this pledge to be a, a vow of, of celibacy as they go on the list. But uh, again, that would be contrary to Scripture. But more importantly, it's not the former pledge. The previous pledge is their first pledge. So what's the first pledge of a Christian? It's your public profession of faith. When you publicly own Christ and are incorporated by that confession into the communicant body of the church. What he's saying is, is that she would be in such a dangerous place with idleness, having these other desires, that she could actually come under God's condemnation by denying, by her practice, by denying the faith. Again, circle back. She is dead spiritually, even though she lives. And so don't put her on there because the idleness could lead her to sensual um, uh, practices and bring her under God's wrath and condemnation. And then in verse 13, the same time they also learn to be idle, they got a lot of time on their hands and they've got a lot more energy. Uh, and they don't have to worry about you know, mending clothes or cooking to support themselves as they would have the energy to do so. No, they're being careful by the church. So what do they do? They go around, verse 13, from house to house. And they're not just idle, but gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. They are stirring up all kinds of problems in the church as they gad about from one house to another. Did you hear about Annie and, and what she did and what happened to her? Or how about Joe? And begin to gossip and to, to carry tales and talk about things for which they should have no concern, perhaps even more lascivious things uh, that would be coarse speech and defiling language. And so really, idleness is the key. Idleness that will cause her to be out manhunting, becoming unchaste, getting married for all the wrong reasons. Idleness that would promote a busybody gossip in the life of the congregation. So Paul gives those two reasons why a widow under 60 should not be enlisted to be on the dole of the church. So he dresses now these widows who are 60 and younger. In verse 14, therefore, now that's the problem with young widows, therefore, because of that, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Now, as in the earlier qualifications, we have kind of the model of a mature, godly woman. Here we have the role of a mature, godly woman in the life of the church and the home. Paul says, get married. Interesting, one of the elders at Woodruff Road came to me recently about a widow in the church there in pastoral visit. She wants to be married. That's good. That's good. And... Uh, the church needs to help in any way that we can, you know, being smaller congregations, not, not a lot of uh, widowers walking around. And again, part of being Presbyterian is to uh, try to be creative with respect to these things. But remarriage is good, and Paul wants them to remarry, and then he wants them 
if possible, to bear children. Now recognize, and the closer she is to 60, the less likely that is that she's going to bear children. But it's a very keen insight, isn't it, into the purpose of marriage? Today, when even in our Christian homes, young couples, I just heard about another one. Yeah, we're going to have children, but uh, you know, actually play a while. What does Paul say? Get married and bear children. And that, God doesn't always give children His kindness and His goodness, His, His sovereign love and good pleasure. But we are to seek those children from the Lord. And of course, today we've got open to us as well the whole avenue then of adoption, where there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of children uh, that uh, uh, we can place into our Christian families, as many in our area have done this. But we see here the purpose of marriage. Remember from our confession of faith. Yes, sexual pleasure, primarily for a helpmeet, but also to have a godly seed. And Paul puts that right here in the forefront. And then vocationally, uh, he says in verse 14, that she is to keep house. That is a very pale translation. It's literally she's to be the house mistress. Now, in Titus 2, 5, he says she's to be a worker at home. So, yes, she is to keep house. But now he says she's in charge of that house. She's responsible to manage that house, uh, a la Proverbs 31 woman, uh, making uh, important decisions for the entire well-being of the family. Of course, the husband is ultimately the manager, but this is her delegated responsibility. It's to run that house. It's to be her delight, her pleasure. It is her calling. It's very important, again, that women understand that if you're married, you don't have a vocation out in the workplace. Now you might at points work in the workplace. I think it's very good for every Christian lady to have some type of, of training to fall back on if she is unbiblically divorced or if she's widowed. But uh, think of okay, her vocation is to be a helper corresponding to the needs of her husband. So yes, a lady may work as long as it does not hinder being the housemistress. The children are gone, away from the home. If she can stay devoted to her primary calling, then there's nothing that forbids women working outside the home or before she has children. But her primary calling is the helper corresponding to the needs of her husband is to be a housemistress and to rear these covenant children for the Lord. He says, if they do this, the enemy will have no occasion for reproach. And Titus, he puts it the other way at the end of, of verse 5, uh, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. It's the same thing. Uh, if ladies behave as they should behave, if men behave as they should behave, uh, God's word will be honored. And there will not be reproach then on the body of Christ. Why? Because some, verse 15, have already turned aside to follow Satan. Back now to these younger widows. They were in danger, and they've actually departed from the faith now to follow Satan. And he wraps it up in verse 16. And here now he's enforcing why he wants younger widows to marry, because he addresses them, I believe, if any woman who is a believer has widows. And of course, it would apply to any woman in the congregation who has substance and means. But in this context... The young widows get married, along with the other women in the church. 
they can have widows that they then will take care of, that they will minister to, that they will use their uh, husbands and their resources to assist them. Why? So the church will not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. And we've come full circle, haven't we? So we all in the body of Christ, verse 3, are to honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice piety. Let the women in the church have widows for whom they're able to care for in the resources that God has given them. The church then would be free to assist those who are widows indeed. Beautiful, I think, to see God's care for the poor. To see here that God uh, calls the church and uses the church to care for widows and the indigent in our midst. It's a beautiful reflection of our Savior who was one of great compassion. Again and again in the Gospel accounts, the writers love to draw our attention to and Jesus had compassion on her and Jesus had compassion on them. Our God is a God of great compassion and we then are to follow in His steps. And so Paul tells us, for example, in Ephesians 4, verse 26, let him who stole steal no longer but work. And one of the reasons is they might have to give to him who is in need. Not just to have for myself, not just to improve my portfolio. That's all good. But also to have surplus to give to those who are in need. Galatians 6, do good to all men, but especially those in the household of faith. You see, it is a Christian responsibility. It is an act of compassion. It is an act of mercy. It is the practice of piety. And God calls us to this. But He also calls us to be wise. We see here there's all kinds of stipulations and qualifications. We're not just throwing money after money, good after bad, or bad after good. We too need to be careful. And what God has done for us unto that end is give us the office of deacon. One of the many beauties of biblical Presbyterianism is the office of deacon. Paul has just addressed it in chapter 3. Right alongside the elders, it's a spiritual office. It is for the well-being of the church. And in our Southern Presbyterian heritage, this is where the office was rediscovered and put to practice. And so we don't go off on our own. Don't give money to the beggar on the side of the street. There's no responsibility in that. Now, I have a friend in Houston. He does something interesting. He gives them a bag of nuts or an apple. So he's not ignoring them. He's showing some compassion, but he's not also foolishly throwing his money uh, at them. But the church deacons have, in this area, a twofold role to stir up our generosity and to lead us wisely in the exercise of generosity. So as you pray for Antioch Presbyterian Church, you know we're praying for elders. We need godly elders in this church, but we need godly deacons as well. It's when we have both that we're going to be a full-orb church able to enter into our parish ministry because the deacon is a very important part of that. And so pray with me that God will give us elders and that God will give us deacons and that we'll be able as a church to reflect the beauty and glory of our Savior as it's manifested in His church. Let's pray.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.